Well, welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. So today's record date is November 24th, 2020. Curious about a COVID cure? We are too. Uh, so we've been with COVID for far too long. Is there hope of a cure? Is there a plan for a cure? Uh, this is stuff we're going to talk about today. I am Dr. Jim McDonald. I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Dr. Chan, how are you today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great. You know, it's sunny. It's delightful outside. It's just great. And it's fun to be chatting with you. Always enjoy our chats together. So let's talk a little bit before we get into cure and is there going to be a COVID cure? Um, one thing to keep in the back of mind, there's an old expression and sometimes old expressions are just simply old expressions. One of my favorite old expressions though is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I was thinking about something the Department of Health and I think with the childhood wellness campaign and so as we talk about treatments, you know, we do need to remember to continue doing the basics like childhood immunizations and routine care. Um, so we please don't forget that that is an important part of preventive health care because uh, the virus is not the only disease out there. So it's one of those things that, as I say that, it's time now to transition to the pandemic continues and the saga. This is officially a saga now. Team human versus team virus is where we're at. And you know, Team Human, we, we got to do some things to overcome our challenges and obstacles. Um, and in fact, nine months ago, we really had no treatments. And it, it's kind of funny, like I've been a physician over 30 years now. And I remember very distinctly from medical school and early training, the phrase, oh, it's viral. There's nothing we can do. And you just wash your hands and throw up your hands in disgust and away you go. And so it's viral. It was just a common expression. And that has changed so much over the last three decades where you know, virology has moved so much and there's treatments out there and there's a lot more we can do. Uh, so we have treatments to address SARS-CoV-2. And today we're gonna to chat about some of these. And you know, there's not a cure per se, at least not a great one, but there's a lot more options now than we ever had before. So Dr. Chan, as we're talking about this through, SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19, but yet what really are we treating? Yeah, so it's great to be talking about cures and treatments. And I, I think to your point, an, an ounce of prevention, I mean, uh, that's what we're, we're talking about here, right? The vet, we're on the verge of a vaccine uh, being available across the U.S., across the world. So I, I'm excited uh, to talk about this. And if you um, haven't already, please do check out our podcast about vaccines. Uh, it gives some uh, good background there. But, you know, what's been fascinating about this uh, pandemic and SARS-CoV-2 specifically, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, is to your point, Dr. McDonald, what are we treating? Are we treating the virus um, or are we treating something else? And I think one thing that we've recognized early on uh, is people who get severely sick, right? People who end up in the hospital, intensive care unit, intubated, et cetera. Um, what is really making them that sick? It's you interesting look, you bring this up, right? It's really the inflammation driving their sickness, right? Exactly. So th certainly the virus starts it off, if you will. But what we see in the in these critically ill people um, is their inflammatory response is what makes them really sick. And your own immune system starts causing the damage to your body in the lungs. It causes something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, ARDS, et cetera. And even this uh, one thing that we've learned, uh, Dr. McDonald, right? Hi the hypercoagulable state, meaning people with COVID-19 are more likely to clot. Yeah, the hypercoagulability was something I didn't see that coming. I think it's one of those things where when you look at why this virus one caused a pandemic, but two, why the pandemic has been so hard is, I think we just see things from this virus we don't see with other viral infections, right? The inflammation 
in the hyperinflammation, that's one thing. But the hypercoagulability, you know, forming clots where we don't normally see clots, clots inside your body where they don't shouldn't be, clots in your kidney, clots in your heart, clots in your brain. These are problems. So you're right. I mean, it's it's a different animal, isn't it? It totally is. And, and as we look at the treatments, and we'll discuss those in a minute, but the, the treatment severely ill people have targeted uh, inflammatory markers and inflammation in critically ill people. It's also standard to anticoagulate people, to give people a little bit of a blood thinner, uh, certainly people who are in the hospital, to make sure they don't develop some of these serious complications of clots. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me how the treatment has really shaped addressing what matters the most, because sometimes it's really the symptoms, sometimes it's really supportive, but really it gets to specific treatments. But if you're going to get a treatment, you need to have access to care. You know, we talk about access to care. You know, part of what I think of with access to care is, do you have a personal medical home? Do you have a patient center medical home? Do you have a doctor? Do you have a nurse practitioner or a PA? Do you have someone you can go to? And by the way, if, if you don't have that, do you have a place where you can go to, like a hospital? Do you have access to these places? And one way to do that is really to access health insurance. If you don't have health insurance, these places become really inaccessible. You know, and it, it gets me to larger questions about just the whole pandemic is like, we talk about social determinants of health a lot, but really it gets to, you've got to have access to healthcare. It really is one of the social determinants of health. Let's bring it back to the disease though. And before we get into treatment, I want to get into just basic physiology. And it's like, why not talk about physiology on our podcast? So antibodies, we're going to be talking about antibodies today too, but what is an antibody, Dr. Chan? Yeah. So antibodies are the proteins that your body makes that basically attach to various outside foreign pathogens. It can be a virus, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, it can be bacteria, um, et cetera. And it targets them for destruction uh, by your immune system. So antibiotics are really the key response uh, uh, by your immune system. And uh, they attach to and recognize uh, pieces of viruses or bacteria called antigens. And antigens are simply uh, a piece of the virus the immune system can target. Yeah, it's funny. Like I think of the analogy of a lock going into a key and then unlocking the cure in a way because the antibody that my immune system makes. One of the things that's fascinating about our immune systems is, you know, I think sometimes our immune systems as a hard drive and a computer. So you should always be nervous when I make computer analogies because I really don't know about computers, but I do know my hard drive has a memory, right? So my hard drive has a memory and it's all my files are always where I left them. But our, our antibodies, like when we get a long-term immune response, it's really our hard drive that remembered what happened um, and it's generating that immune response. And I think that's part of what's what's fun about that. But one of the things we're seeing more about is we look at treatments and made the news last week was monoclonal antibodies. So Dr. Chan, what are monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, so monoclonal antibodies are antibodies made uh, in the lab. They essentially are trying to mimic um, antibodies that a person would make uh, in response to SARS-CoV-2. And they're essentially made by, by a lab, similar to any other medication, uh, et cetera. They are expensive. They are complex to make. And it's sort of the concept we've discussed before in some forms about convalescent plasmas. This is what initially was sort of the precursor in my mind to monoclonal antibodies, right? And someone, convalescent plasma means that you take someone that had documented SARS-CoV-2 infection and you take out the antibodies, the plasma, uh, which contains the antibodies for a person, and you actually infuse that in someone um, that has is currently infected with SARS-CoV-2. And the thought is, is that the preformed antibodies from someone that has them would actually uh, attack and, and uh, deactivate SARS-CoV-2 in people that are significantly sick. And so um, what's come out uh, most recently are these monoclonal antibodies, uh, which is very exciting. Yeah, and so if I understand a monoclonal antibody, it's very specific to the disease. 
And when I think of the word monoclonal, there's the one, which is mono, then there's clone, which clone. So really it's, it's taking that one antibody and literally just replicating it over and over again and giving that patient that antibody for that specific disease. So when you're trying to treat this virus, it's really giving just the antibody you need to fight the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what does that antibody actually do? It actually, can you explain what it does? How does it actually work? Yeah, so I think one of the most important uh, parts, uh, if you will, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is something called the spike protein. And people may have heard about this, but it's essentially the, the part of the virus. I sort of think about it as a little protrusion um, from the virus actually binds to uh, the human cells, the ACE2 receptors of human cells, and it allows the virus essentially to infect other cells. And so it, made, it has made a perfect target for antibodies, and these monoclonal antibodies target the spike protein. And so if you can imagine it, it's essentially like a, a block. It binds to the spike protein on this virus and essentially blocks it from entering cells and also targets the virus for destruction. Yeah, so what's nice about that, if I understand it correctly, is if the virus can't enter the cell, then the virus can't replicate inside the cell and then make more virus. So you really have a chance of actually winning the battle now with your own immune system, right? Because the macrophages, other white blood cells can actually kill circulating a virus, which is what our immune system is pretty good at doing. So the first company that got an emergency use authorization for a monoclonal antibody was Lilly. Lilly's a big pharmaceutical company, been around a long time. And, you know, I will let you pronounce the name of that product. You know, I've referred to it as Bam Bam around the Department of Health because I gave up on phonics a long time ago. So Bam Bam is what I call it. But how do you pronounce this new monoclonal antibody? And what do you think about it? Putting me on the spot here. Well, so uh, as you know, there's actually two now. There's one by Regeneron, uh, which is a combination. Interestingly, that's the one that Trump got uh, initially. And I think the key point actually to think about these, you know, I think with anything with the pandemic, my favorite expression has been, uh, we're, we're building the plane while we're learning to fly. And, you know, these approval, these monoclonal antibodies are based on some very early studies. And I think it's important for people, if you ever, you know, get into science and want to read some of these studies, if you look at like what they're actually, what are the outcomes? Like what is the benefit of these monoclonal antibodies? I think that's sort of the million dollar question. And if you look at what they've done in these studies, uh, their outcome was uh, preventing hospitalizations and emergency room visits. And if you look at, for example, Regeneron in the latest study that they published, uh, you, you prevented it in about uh, 6% of patients. So 3% of people in the Regeneron group were admitted to the hospital um, versus 9% in the placebo group. So overall small numbers, uh, but I think what's really striking about this, and one thing just to, to emphasize to people that are listening, is that more data is needed. And really we wanna see that these have an important um, effect on survival outcomes. And I think that's one piece of data that a lot of us are really waiting. We wanna see if these drugs actually help people survive and make them less sick. So I noticed you didn't pronounce the name of Bam Bam. So I I'm going to try because I feel like we should. Do you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Bam Lanivimab. How'd I do? I think you did pretty good. I usually say Bam Lanivimab. Bam Lanivimab. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And it, it's an IV drug, intravenous drug. And I, I have to give you a Star Trek analogy because what podcast would be complete from us without a Star Trek analogy? So it's like intravenous drug, 
and it's going to be infused over about an hour and you have to watch the patient for an hour. It seems relatively safe, but it's kind of funny. I was thinking about, you know, if this was Star Trek and Dr. Crusher was coming around, did you notice in every Star Trek episode, whenever they need to give anyone anything, it was always a spritz into the neck. And, and I just have to say, I don't know what futuristic scientists were thinking about by spritzes in the neck. Is I don't think people want injections in the neck, but I just think it had a lot to do with costume. But I, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Chan? Yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting for my tricorder to come. But uh, I think this comes back to uh, one thing that you touched on, right, is access. You know, half the battle, of course, is developing the treatments. Uh, but the other half the battle is really getting them uh, out there. And I, it, it's been interesting to watch. Um, these monoclonal antibodies uh, and and how to get them to people, people that need a mouth. And I, I've learned to appreciate the fact that that's almost half the battle. Um, and I think to your point, especially with these monoclonal antibodies, you know, they have to be prepared a special way. You need some uh, special filters. Uh, and then you got to infuse them over an IV, right? So IVs are not something that typical doctors can always do. Yeah. So this really raises the issue. We're going to have to have infusion center. So one of the things we've been working out here in Rhode Island is make sure the hospitals that can get the drug actually have an infusion center to actually give the IV drug over that hour, watch the patient for the other hour, and make sure there's no problem with it. I mean, I think what I've seen so far is from the preliminary studies was, you know, most people did pretty well getting the medicine. Yeah. So we haven't seen uh, many reactions to it, I think, as you're alluding to, um, which is uh, exciting. Um, but I think uh, very early, very early on. So I'm sure there'll be much more to come. So let's switch gears a little bit, Dr. Chan. Let's talk about remdesivir. Remdesivir has been in the news. It's different. What, what do we need to know about remdesivir? How does that fit into the equation for looking for a cure for COVID? Yeah, I think most people have probably heard of remdesivir. Uh, it's a, the, the first approved, officially approved uh, drug medication to treat SARS-CoV-2. Actually, interestingly, I was reading about this uh, when it first uh, was under study and brought up. And it, you know, it's an IV drug. It inhibits RNA transcription and viral replication. And it's demonstrated great uh, in the lab in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2. I think, interestingly to me, it was actually um, uh, first used in part for Ebola, um, and it ended up not actually showing any effectiveness in treating Ebola. And then people pulled it off the shelf to test for, uh, to, to try it against SARS-CoV-2 here. Yeah, kind of an interesting theme for all the treatments. It was nice that we kind of had something in the background. And my, my understanding of how remdesivir actually works, it actually stops the virus from replicating. So it doesn't actually kill the virus per se. Uh, so it just stops the virus from replicating. So when you have a drug that kills a virus, that's called virucidal. When you have a virus that just stops it from replicating, that's called virostatic. Um, but we have antibiotics that do the same thing to bacteria. So I, I think that's a win, um, and that's good. So remdesivir, you know, has it been a game changer? What do you think? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. That goes back to, I think, some of our earlier discussion about what has it really shown uh, impacts on, how effective is it? And, you know, I was reminded that this drug was first issued an EUA by the FDA on May 1st. So it's been around now for, for several months. Uh, to remind people, right, an EUA, emergency use authorization, is something the FDA uh, issues um, through an emergency mechanism. And it means that essentially it has not undergone the same type of review for an official FDA approved drug. 
Um, it means that you know the the risks of giving this, um, you know, benefits outweigh potential risks. Um, so the EUA has been since May, and I think one thing that's happened in the recent times here is after multiple studies, right? There's been multiple studies by uh, many scientists across the world, but the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, did complete their own study called the Solidarity Trial, and it actually showed no benefit of remdesivir on survival outcomes. I think interestingly, the WHO actually recommended against routine use of remdesivir in COVID-19 patients, citing that there's no evidence on improved survival. So is it a game changer? I think it's a, it's a proof of concept game changer, meaning that um, it's demonstrated great activity against SARS-CoV-2, but it hasn't improved really that, that gold standard, which is survival. Yeah, and it really gets to just treating viral infections is quite frankly harder. And you know it's far better to prevent them in the first place. Uh, so there was another drug that got approved to an EUA last week as well, which is baricitinib, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory, something that's really been used more in the rheumatological worlds. Um, what are your thoughts on, on this drug? I'm, I'm calling this one Barry, by the way. So I, you know, just so folks know, I'm done with hard pronunciations. I'm giving things nicknames because I think that's just more civilized. What are your thoughts, Dr. Chan? Yeah, I love it. And, and good job pronouncing it, by the way. You know, this is something, uh, this is what's known as a JAK, J-A-K uh, inhibitor. Um, it, it's been approved now in combination with remdesivir to treat uh, patients, hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19, uh, those requiring oxygen, mechanical ventilation, et cetera. And to your point, it has been approved since 2018 for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, back to our initial discussion about this inflammation and this overactive immune system that really causes damage. You know, these JAK inhibitors uh, act and suppress the inflammatory pathway. Uh, so it's thought that this uh, leads to one's body being uh, less damaged through the normal inflammatory response immune system. Uh, et cetera. So likewise, similar, I think, to some of the other drugs, much more to learn, much more to come from, from these JAK inhibitors. Yeah. So it's interesting. This medication doesn't kill the virus and doesn't inhibit its replication, but it just helps prevent the end organ damage in our body, uh, which is, you know, letting your own immune system have the time then to kill the virus that's around there. So we're still, you know, one of the things I think about with all the treatments we have, you're still counting on the person who's ill, the host, if you will, having a decent immune system to actually get rid of the virus. And that just speaks to why it's really important to make sure we keep ourselves overall healthy so we can really get rid of the virus. But there's a there's more though, there's steroids. And it's like, let's talk about steroids. And no, it's not that kind of steroids. Like the steroids that you hear about the baseball players using or used, so I guess they're done with that now, kind of. That isn't medical steroids. Like I've never prescribed any of those anabolic steroids for a patient ever. It just never comes up in conversation in the exam room. But dexamethasone, that does come up as something we've decided. So glucocorticosteroids, glucocorticosteroids, or steroids like dexamethasone are things that we commonly use in medicine. These have been around for a long time, FDA approved, but these were shown to be effective in helping with hospitalized patients. What are your thoughts about the steroids we've seen? Yeah, so I think to your point, this has really been a game changer. And you know, it's interesting, this uh, dexamethasone, right? This is this drug has been around for for decades. And if you look at the data, um, so back in June, there's this big study called the recovery study. Um, and it showed that dexamethasone reduced death. So again, that all important outcome, uh, uh, survival, uh, but it reduced death by up to one third in hospitalized patients with severe um, complications of COVID-19, so one third. So to me, uh, this was uh, really one of the best case scenarios, game changer. It's a medication that's broadly available uh, throughout the world. Uh, it's, it's cheap. 
Um, we have access to, we use it for many other things. Uh, and it reduced uh, death by up to one third in patients with severe uh, disease. And this has really been one of the, the, the standards now of treatment and studies now have, uh, have, have shown that steroids are really a key component of treatment. So good news all around. This out of all of it has really been uh, one of the key pieces of treatment. It's interesting, like when I talk to some of the ICU physicians in the state, they actually think that dexamethasone has a lot to do with keeping people out of the ICU, as well as some of the other medications we have too. Um, so I think that's just one of the things we're seeing too, is as the pandemic goes on, the cases are going up, the inpatients are going up, but we're not seeing the ICU patients going up. About in the beginning of the pandemic, maybe 20, 25% of the people end up in the ICU. Now we're seeing 10 to 13%. So kind of an interesting change a little bit as the pandemic progresses here. So now we want to talk a little bit about where we've been the pandemic, hydroxychloroquine. They've got to, we got to get into the hydroxychloroquine story. And it, it's funny, I sent you this article this morning. I was talking about this. One of my favorite classic public health articles was from 1965, and it was by Sir Austin Bradford Hill. So it's one of the classic articles in public health talks about the environment, disease, association, or causation. And it really gets to a core public health concept. And it's true in life in general, by the way. Like, one of the things we're trying to figure out is, is there an association or causation? And part of why we do research, just period, is we're just trying to understand causation. And it's funny because I think so often as humans, we're so prone to, if we see a temporal association, I did this, then that happened, and then we go to, therefore, this must have been what caused all that to happen, when temporal associations really are just one element. And you know, if you ever get the time to read uh, the environment, and disease association or causation. There's nine different elements that, you know, Sir Austin Bradford Hill looks for, but we won't get into that article today. We probably should do that at some time in the future. Maybe we should do a podcast on just this article or maybe classic public health articles in general. But let me, Dr. Chan, talk to me about the hydroxychloroquine story. I am listening with with bated breath and, and ears that are queued up for this. So, Dr. McDonald, this to me is one of the most interesting uh, academically uh, stories and lessons uh, from the pandemic. And, uh, you know, this drug hydroxychloroquine, right? right? It's called uh, Plaquenil. That's kind of uh, the, the brand name. Um, they're, they're oral medications that have been around uh, forever to treat malaria and other autoimmune diseases. Again, back to that concept of inflammation, they're known to suppress the, the immune system to some degree. And early on, they both demonstrated uh, in vitro laboratory activity against SARS-CoV-2. And there were some initial reports that came out of China that suggested based on, on opinions of some uh, physicians there, uh, the healthcare uh, folks, that uh, they may work in treating SARS-CoV-2. And it was interesting how that uh, really spread uh, throughout the world. And if you look early on and remember back to these days, you know, entire countries were including hydroxychloroquine in their standard approaches to treatment, um, all without evidence. And as I've reflected on it, it's really, I think, a... a you know, the fact that we wanted something, we needed a treat, we had nothing to treat SARS-CoV-2, right? But we needed something. Um, and certainly, you know, there's no, there's no blame. Uh, we were, you know, people were dying. We, we, we thought that this was going to work and, uh, and, and we tried it and ultimately it has shown to, to have failed, but it's, it's really one of those stories of why we need to rely on evidence, uh, why we need to rely on science, and why we need to study all these drugs and, and, and to ensure that they work. Because these drugs are not benign. So we want to be careful and use them where they're indicated. It's funny. You remind me how in the beginning of the pandemic, treatment seems so helpless. And, you know, we just, and I think that's part of the desperation that brought hydroxychloroquine 
into the limelight. And it's interesting, you use the word in vitro. And I, I think back to, you know, when I was learning that concept in college, in vitro means literally in a test tube or in a laboratory. And, you know, just because something works in a laboratory in a test tube doesn't mean it's going to work in vivo. In vivo means in a human body, right? In, in a body, right? In, in, in the live, a live person like, like us. And it just speaks to, there's a reason why we have to do the heavy lifting and the research uh, that we do there. And, and, you know, it was done with hydroxychloroquine. It, it kind of had its day. It still has its fans, ironically. And, and I, they're fans and, and they're out there and they, they believe in it. But quite frankly, it just science has not really been kind to hydroxychloroquine. And one of the things I saw as kind of an interesting side effect was there's so much hoarding of hydroxychloroquine in the beginning. The patients who needed it for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis who, who really just depended on it had a hard time getting it. I remember in Rhode Island hearing some of the pharmacists kind of you know saying to me back in March saying, can you do something about this? So we actually did a regulation about it, about off-label prescribing. We weren't forbidding it, but saying you had to do your due diligence, doctor, you got to at least quote one article in your medical record and say you've discussed risk benefits and you have to give the doc, the pharmacist, the diagnosis. So the pharmacist knew what they were feeling. So it's, it's time to bring our, our podcast to a close today. It's amazing how our time goes by, but I, I think we kind of are finding a point that we don't have a magic bullet yet for uh, COVID-19. And I'm not even sure we have something for everybody yet. We kind of have something for everybody yet. In other words, I see an outpatient treatment and monoclonal antibodies that's here. And we're, we're doing first doses of Rhode Island this week, which is exciting, but it's an intravenous drug. Uh, so it's got moving parts. Got to move a COVID positive patient to get there. So we've got our infusion centers ready to go. Um, and hopefully that's going to be helpful. You know, I think dexamethasone is definitely a, a really useful drug and that can be given in the hospital. Remdesivir, definitely useful. Again, an IV drug has to be given in a hospital. I think baricitinib, another IV drug. Hey, you, you're picking up a theme here. Everything's going in intravenously. No one's following the Dr. Crusher model of a spritzer in the neck because that technology isn't, isn't warm to us yet. And quite frankly, I'm fine if it never comes around. I'm not interested in drugs being spritzed to my neck. Thank you very much. But I do think we're making progress here. But what we're not seeing yet is an oral medication, which is what we're used to, right? I think most of us are used to have strep throat, take penicillin, get better, be happy. I, I think those days are a long ways away. Dr. Chen, do you agree? I agree, but who knows? Who knows? Science, that's what's cool about it. You never know. I'm amazed how much has happened so quickly in the pandemic. As much as it feels like it's been going on a long time, we really have come a long way. And we're ready for our final word, Dr. Chan. What do you have for us today? Thank you, Dr. McDonald, and thank you all for listening again. In closing, I leave you with another moment of Zen to consider throughout your day. And here it is, the temptation to give up its strongest just before victory. So keep hopeful, stay optimistic. Vaccines are almost here. The end of this is in sight. Thank you all and be well. Thank you, Dr. Chan. And I want to thank our executive producer, Mr. Jose Garcia, and our technical director, Travis Vendetti.